one of the ways that you can follow along with what we talk about on Sunday mornings is through through our website, crossplainschristian.com. We try to do our best to get the sermons recorded and uploaded there. So even if you miss and you want to know what we're talking about or what crazy things I said, you can go there and you can listen to them. Um, so last week we talked about uh, Luke chapter 10. The week before that we're in Luke chapter 9, just spending time in the Gospel of Luke, reading what's going on there. And we'll do some more of that today and kind of finish up Luke 10. The challenges that Jesus gave, give us don't end. The way that Jesus calls for me to live um, Im- should impact every part of my life um, and everything that I do. And that's a lot of what we covered in, in Luke 9 where Jesus gives us this I- encouragement but a warning where he says it's going to cost you something to follow me. It's going to cost you something. It's going to cost you what might seem like a lot, but Jesus tells us that it's worth it because the cost, there is a cost to following Jesus, and he never hides that from you or from me or, or from anybody. But he tells us that that cost is always going to be worth it because the things that we think that we're giving up in reality, we're never going to miss. And that's what Jesus talks about in Luke 9 in a couple different ways. And then what happens at the beginning of Luke chapter 10, just a brief recap, recap on what we talked about last week, is Jesus takes, he chooses from among some of his disciples that are following him, and he sends out 72 to go out into places that Jesus hasn't been yet, and to get them ready to hear what he's going to say. So that people would be ready to hear what Jesus was going to teach, and he sent them out in pairs so that they could work together to do things. And he sent them out, and that's where we have this famous saying of Jesus where he says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray that the Lord of the harvest will send workers out into the field. The harvest that Jesus talks about is you and me and people and every person that has ever lived. Because God wants, more than anything else, everyone to come to repentance. God wants every one of his children that he created, that he loved, that he cares for, to come to him and to recognize just how deeply and dearly loved that they are by God. And how he goes about accomplishing that is by the Holy Spirit to convict people and to teach people. But one of the other ways, or I guess you could say the primary way that Jesus does that is through you. Is that he does that through the church, through his people, through us together. Where we figure out what Jesus has called us to do and what he's, how he's created us to live and what he wants for us to accomplish. In a prayer for us, that would be phenomenal, and we would never, I think, wear it out praying it, is to pray what Jesus told his, this group of 72 that he sent out. He said, pray that the Lord will send out workers into his harvest. But that's all recap. That's none of the new stuff that we're going to read and that we're going to talk about today. So here, we're going to start in the middle of Luke chapter 10, Luke 10, verse 21. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit, and he said, all right, hold on, that's not what Jesus said, but I'm going to tell you, (laughs) all right, I'm not going to stop after I read every couple verses, but I want to make sure that, that, that we don't miss this together. Verse 21 starts out, it says, in that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, so this is Jesus rejoicing in the Spirit, so we see this example of Jesus rejoicing, he being joyful and rejoicing. And if we go back up to what Jesus had just said right before that, in the second half of verse 20, he tells us why. He's rejoicing not that spirits are subject to his followers, that he could give them powers, that they could heal demons and cast out things and heal sicknesses. But Jesus is rejoicing 
For the same reason he told his followers to rejoice, the last half of verse 20, Jesus says, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Jesus rejoices, and he tells us to rejoice when we know that our names are included in heaven, in the Lamb's book of life, in those whose lives are covered, whose sins are forgiven, who are washed away by the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross. So that's why Jesus is rejoicing. I didn't want us to miss that because it's holidays and we can be happy and joyful in some cases. But remember, as Jesus rejoiced, we should rejoice about the things that Jesus rejoiced about. And the same is true on the opposite side of that. The things that we see in Scripture that break God's heart should break my heart. I don't know about you, but way too often I'm um, I'm guilty of not following that paradigm enough were the things that I know break God's heart, I just kind of go, eh, that's just kind of how the world is. But that's not, that's not a good response. That's not an appropriate response for me as a believer. All right, I'm going to read this. So we have Jesus rejoicing in the Spirit. All right. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see, and they did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and they did not hear it. I'll stop there for just a little bit. I can't help but think that as Jesus says privately to his disciples, to his followers here, he says, Blessed are you who get to see what you get to see in your life. He's talking to his followers. He said, blessed are you that you get to see me, that you get to see Jesus who, who came and lived and healed and told people that their sins were forgiven. And his words were empty because he backed up his words. I know oftentimes, I know too often in my life, I'm not like Jesus. My words fall empty because I say good and noble things, but my actions don't back them up. What I see in Scripture and what you'll see as you see Jesus in his life, his words never fall empty. He never goes back on what he said. He is never going to let me down. So he says to his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who can see me. For how many kings and prophets longed for the day that the Messiah would come, yet you get to live here right now in it. I think that verse, that paragraph here from Jesus has a ton of application for us as the church. Now, we're not the disciples living and walking and seeing Jesus talk and breathe and care for people and get upset and all those things. But where we sit, I can't help but think that these words continue to be true for us as the church, where Jesus might look at me and he say, Joel, how many people would long to be in your position? How many people would long to live where you live? How many kings and prophets and people of old who look forward to God and look forward to the church would be so thrilled to live in the age that you live in in the church where God is alive and well, where his church has been established through the teaching of Jesus, through the foundation from the apostles, through the carry on 
from the Holy Spirit that started the church, that continues the church, that is a part of the church here today, how many people would love to live in the course of history where we live right now? And I'm not talking geographically, I'm talking historically, where we are, where God has instilled his church because the church was always God's plan. Always. How many people would be so knocked down to live where they could be a part of the church? God's plan to save everybody, to bring them back to him. For I tell you, how many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and hear what you hear and did not hear it. One of the lessons I think that we learn very early on in life in a lot of different areas I know that I learn is that kind of once you get something, that it, it's not enough anymore. We have this, or at least I do, have this insatiable desire for more, for better, for newer, for faster, or smaller and quicker, depending on what you're talking about, where I feel like this is going to fulfill me and sustain me, and then I get it, and I kind of inoculate myself to it. Like, oh, yeah, well, my house is kind of nice, but what about, oh, my car is getting kind of, or it's really easy for me to lose contentment to lose sight of the things that God has given and that God has provided to me. And these words of Jesus are so true. And I can kind of take for granted all that God has done for me and where he allowed for me to live. How many people did not see it and wanted to hear what you hear and did not have the chance? I don't want to keep reading. It was verse, was this verse 25, and we'll read um, this next story of Jesus. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Verse 29, But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and fell among the robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was coming down that road, and he saw him as he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and he saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him, and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave him to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed mercy. The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, 
you go and do likewise. All right, I want to make sure I get this story right as we read it, because sometimes I read stuff and I think I know what happened, but I overlook stuff or I miss it. So I'll kind of talk our way through it here. It tells us very clearly that a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test. And he says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responded, he says, what is written in the law and how do you read it? And does the lawyer get the question right or wrong? Not rhetorical. Does he get the question right or wrong? Right. He gets it right. Jesus says, what is written in the law and how do you understand it? Not just do you know what it says, but did you understand it properly? And he did, kind of. He got it right. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is the same answer that Jesus is given when he is asked, what is the most important of all of the laws? And we talk about that here at Cross Plains a lot. It comes from Mark chapter 10, because we've defined what a Christian is, what a disciple is. We are people who love God and others, Mark 12, 30 and 31, who bear fruit and who equip others for service. So Mark 10, Jesus is asked. What is the most important commandment? And he responds with Deuteronomy chapter 6, which is what this lawyer does. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul and all your strength. That's what Deuteronomy 6 says. That's what Jesus turns to when he says, what's the most important commandment? And the lawyer even adds on this part. He says, and love your neighbor as yourself. So he gets the question right, and Jesus says to him, you've answered the question correctly, do this and you will live. Well, the lawyer did often, honestly, what I do a lot of times. Jesus tells me what I'm supposed to do. And then I'm like, well, define that for me. Define, define for me what neighbor is because I think I know what it is, but I don't want to do too much. <laughs> I don't want to do too little. I just want to kind of fall in the middle and just kind of skate by. He says, define for me what a neighbor is. So Jesus tells a story. And remember that this story that Jesus tells, this parable of the Good Samaritan, which in Jesus' day didn't exist. Good Jewish people didn't believe that there was a Good Samaritan, much like Alabama fans can't believe that there's a good Auburn fan. They just don't exist, right? Doesn't exist. It's, it just can't go together. That the Good and Samaritan don't happen because they, they're just not. They're no Good Samaritans. So Jesus tells this story. And the story that he tells is to answer this question of who is my neighbor who's my neighbor and he says jesus replies he said there's a man going down from jerusalem to jericho and that's no small thing where jesus says that because there's an enormous elevation change from jerusalem to jericho according to google maps which jesus didn't use you could get from jerusalem to jericho in about it's 28 miles take about 45 minutes in your car to drive around on the winding roads but the elevation difference between jerusalem and Jer jericho if you've ever been to St. Louis, Missouri, and you get in your car and you drive west to Denver, Colorado, 850 miles, the elevation change from St. Louis to Denver is the same as the elevation change from Jerusalem down to Jericho. So it is no accident, no little thing that the Bible says when it talks about people traveling. If you're going from Jericho, you're going up to Jerusalem. You're going from Jerusalem, you're going down to Jericho. And these roads were perilous, and they knew about it. There were thieves and robbers that were there. Not an easy walk or drive. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, and he was beat up, and he was left half dead. Or if you're an optimist, he was left half alive, right? He was all his stuff was taken from him, and he was beat up, and he was messed up. And there are the three different people that come beside him and that could have offered him help. 
the first is a priest that comes, and he walks by him, and it says what? Does he go by on the other side of the road and ignores him? And then it says that a Levite comes, and it also, he too passes on the other side of the road. And this maybe would have been shocking to Jesus' like hearers as he told this story, but maybe it wouldn't have been because priests are the priests. They offer sacrifices, and they lead the people but they come from the tribe of Levi, so all priests are Levites, but not all Levites are, are priests. So not all the people that came from the tribe of Levi would become priests, but if you wanted to be a priest, you had to come from that right tribe. You had to be born into it so that you could aspire to be that. That's just how it worked in their day. But these are people that we would expect to be the religious leaders and to set the example. Now, some people might want to give the excuse, well, the priest couldn't go and to help him because he, then he would have been unclean and he couldn't have fulfilled his priestly duties. And that's just a garbage answer. That's just a garbage excuse trying to justify why we don't do things. And the Levite, who would have known better too, passed by on the other side. And this is where Jesus, as often is the case, with his parables where he spins it around and he gives you something that you didn't expect to hear. Now sometimes those of us in church, we become jaded because we've heard these stories before and we kind of know how it ends. But this is where everybody that heard Jesus tell this story that would become the story of the Good Samaritan that you and I read about in Luke chapter 10. This is where everybody would have gone. Did you hear what he just said? Tell him he's wrong. And it says, but a Samaritan as he journeyed came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. Compassion is um, action is involved when there's compassion that exists. It's one thing just to feel bad for somebody. It's another thing to have compassion and to be moved to action. That's why the Bible describes this Samaritan as having compassion on this man who was left for dead, who was robbed and beaten and humiliated. And it said he had compassion, and we have proof that he has compassion, not just because Jesus said it, but that there went to be action that came on behind it. The Samaritan went to bind up his wounds, he put this man who had been robbed on his own animal and took him to an inn. And it says that he stood there and took care of him. I think a lot of times when I replay this story in my head, I think, well, yeah, he helped him on the way and he took him and he paid the innkeeper to take care of him and he took off. But that's not immediately what happens. He stays there and he cares for him. That's what it says. It says he set him on his own animal in verse 34 and he brought him to the inn and he took care of him. We don't know if he was planning to stay on the inn, inn or not that night. I tend to think no. But he stayed there, and he took care of him. Then he knew when it was time for him to go, he told the innkeeper, he said, continue. He said, take care of him, and whatever money you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Now, remember the reason that Jesus told this whole story? Because the lawyer asked, okay, Jesus, love God with everything I have and love my neighbors myself. Who's my neighbor? Jesus asks the question at the end of his parable. He says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, again, talking about compassion, that there is action that is there. He says, go and do likewise. So what we have is Jesus answers the question that was asked, and he also did what he often does, is that he answered the additional question that sometimes we forget to ask. 
Jesus answered not only who is my neighbor, and he answered that. In the story, who is the neighbor? Who proved to be a neighbor in the story? Was it the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan? It was the Samaritan. Well, why was it the Samaritan? Why did the, how did the Samaritan prove to be a neighbor to this man that he had never met before, that he did not know, that he had no obligation or allegiance to? How did the Samaritan prove to be a neighbor? He had compassion. And he showed mercy. And that's the answer that the lawyer gives. The one that proved to be a neighbor is the one who showed him mercy. So Jesus answers the question of, well, who is my neighbor? And the way that I read it, when Jesus tells me who my neighbor is, it's whoever needs help. Whoever I will, not may, but whoever I will come across in life that I can take time to help them, to care for them when they need it the most. I can't think of any other conclusions of this story of answering, well, who is my neighbor? Because the Samaritan didn't know this guy. They never met him. But he saw that he needed help and that he could help. Was it convenient for the Samaritan? I doubt it. It wasn't in his schedule. It wasn't something that he planned to do. But Jesus, okay, he answered the question that was asked, who is my neighbor? He also answered the question, what does a neighbor do? So it's not just who is my neighbor, and I think Jesus clearly tells us what that is, but he answers the question of, well, what does a neighbor do? Or what should I do for my neighbor? And the answer from the lawyer, which was right, he got two questions right, but he got the heart of the entire thing wrong. And that's a warning for me that maybe sometimes I can give the right Christian answer, but my heart can be in the wrong place, and I can get it wrong by the way that I live. Because he gets the question right, love God with everything you have, love your neighbor as yourself. Then at the end, he says, well, who is the neighbor? And the answer is the one who showed mercy. That's what we are to do to our neighbors as followers of Jesus. We are to show mercy to other people. And that's why Jesus told him, he said, go and do likewise. Martin Luther King said it this way as he was talking about this parable of the Good Samaritan. He said the first two guys that passed him by, the priest and the Levite, asked this question. They said, if I stop to help him, what will happen to me? They said, if I stop to help him, what will happen to me? That's a pretty selfish and arrogant question, right? But I think Dr. King was spot on in his assessment of that's exactly how the priest and the Levite look. If I stop to help, what about what's going to happen to me? What are people going to think? Is going to impact my day? What if I have to become ritually clean again and I can't? What, what's going to happen to me if I stop to help? But the Samaritan asked a better reversed question. If I don't help this man, what will happen to him? That is always the better question for Jesus' followers. If I don't help, what will happen? If I'm not willing to help, do I have any place to say, well, the church should do it? Or Christians should take care of it? Or somebody that's not quite as busy as I am right now should do that? 
but to ask, if, I, if not me, then who? Because we can't always pass the burden on to somebody else when God is calling for you to respond in the name of Jesus and to show the love of our Heavenly Father who sent Jesus down for all of us to other people. The Bible describes how Christians can be a light into the world and that we're to put that light where the most people can see it. We're not to hide it or put it away or be ashamed about it. But we want so many people to know what we stand for as Christians. It's easy for me. I grew up in the church. I spent a lot of time in the church. Um, it's just who I am. It's not it makes me better than anybody else, whether wherever you are, whether if you're new to church or not. Or it's just my experience in life. What I have found is that it can become easy for me to kind of glaze over the teachings of Jesus. Where I can go, yep, heard that, know what it means. But what I find is most often true for me is that when I do that, is that I'm missing the heart of what Jesus said. Oh, yeah, a good Samaritan. Yeah, I know, got it. I don't need to learn from that anymore. <laughs> the truth is that I'm always learning from God's word, whether I'm reading the stories of Jesus or the life of Jesus for the first time or the millionth time. That there is always something for me to learn, even in the most common teachings when it comes to the church and Jesus. And in fact, I would go so far as to say that perhaps it's the verses or it's the passages or it's the Bible stories that maybe I feel like I know so well that are the most dangerous. Because if I ever find for me that I get to the point that I've, hey, I've got to figure it out or I know what Jesus is teaching and, I, and I'm not going to learn anymore, that I get, that's, that's a place I don't ever want to be. I don't ever want to take for granted what Jesus has allowed for me to read and what he has allowed for me. To go back into what Jesus said to his disciples in the passage before when he told the, the story of the Good Samaritan, where he said, how many people that came before you, prophets and kings, had longed to see what you see? And would give up so much to have an opportunity to be a part of this movement that you're a part of, that you and I today as Christians that are and can be a part of in the church. Maybe for you, what the application is, is I don't want to take it for granted. I want to make sure that I know these stories, not just forwards and backwards, but enough that it penetrates my heart and that it's going to change the way that I live. That I can see not just the question that is asked, but the answer that Jesus gives me to the second question that I should have asked that I forgot about. Not just who is my neighbor, but then what do I do as a neighbor? How do I show the love of God to others? And it's the one who had compassion. It's the one who were, was able to extend mercy. As, as is often the case, you ask a general big group of people about stuff, and it's like, do you want your life to improve? Do you want it to change for the better? And everybody's like, yeah, I sure do. Well, who wants to change? Nope. <laughs> nope, I don't want to do it. I just want to stay how I am because I'm comfortable, and even if I don't like the results that I'm getting in life, I at least know what's going on here, and I can stay right here and be comfortable. Even though I don't like it, I, there's comfort in knowing what's going on. But what God has called for us to do is to change and to be the change. And that's going to start not by challenging other people to do it, but by challenging myself. If anybody can help, 
if everybody's called to help as Christians, well, everybody includes me. <laughs> and maybe what I need to do and maybe what you need to do is take what Jesus is teaching you and say, well, let me start first with me. And how can I show compassion and mercy to people in their darkest hour, on their worst day? And by doing that, impact them, not just for the rest of this life, but eternity. When they come to see Jesus, because I wasn't too busy to share with them. Let me pray. God, you are the king of this world. God, you are in control. God, that you are not limited. And God, you have given each one of us an opportunity in life to respond to the gospel, to accept Jesus, and then to take his teachings and to apply those to our life together with the church and to go out and draw more people into the kingdom because of what you have done for us. God, I pray that in this season of Thanksgiving where we rejoice, but also it can be, it does become hard when we're reminded whether we can't be with or our family is passed on. God, may we remember that you are in control and that you are there for us. And God, may we continually give thanks to you for all of the abundant blessings that you pour out on us day by day. God, I pray that everyone here will draw closer to you through your word and through your people, that we are renewed by the truth that is the Bible. God, may we live our lives differently because of Jesus. God, show us this week for the rest of the year, and even today, God, who our neighbors are and how we are to respond to them with mercy. And the truth of the matter is, it has nothing to do with whether they deserve it or not. God, but it has everything to do with what you've commanded for us to do as your followers. Kind Father, may we take that so seriously. God, move in our lives in powerful ways as we show compassion and mercy to the world around us. Father, may we rejoice in these times that are appropriate when we can celebrate about someone's name being included in your kingdom. God, may everything that we do be about Jesus, because of Jesus, and for Jesus. And in the name of Jesus, I pray and I ask all of these things. Amen.